sitting there for many years and uh, enduring the services. I, uh, I remember when I was four or five years old, just a youngster, I saw people coming up to an altar at the church service, and I thought, you know, I'm an ADD four-year-old and squirming in my seat. I thought, I just want to move. I want to do something. And I told my mom I wanted to go down to the altar like everybody else. And she uh, said, well, not right now. And she talked with me later when we got home that night. And I remember her talking to me. I remember us kneeling by the bed. I remember us praying a prayer. But I don't remember anything about what we talked about or what the prayer was about. For years, I sat in the pews of our churches unchanged and, uh, and lost. And I was 13 years old and... I began to I began to have great conviction. I'm talking. Uh, I would literally have nightmares at night. I, I, I re- remember dreaming one dream in particular over and over again of the rapture taking place. My mom and my dad, my older sister, all going up to see Jesus, and I was standing there on the ground. I was jumping as hard as I could, trying to get up into the air, and I couldn't do it. I'd wake up in a cold sweat. I think, Lord, I'm not saved. I know I'm not saved. And uh, 13 years old, I, I used to think, uh, for months I went through that, and I used to think, I wonder what everybody's going to say if, if the pastor's son comes forward to get saved in the middle of a church service. And I thought, how embarrassing my mom and dad's going to be. They're going to be embarrassed by it. And uh, people are going to laugh and ridicule and scoff. Because here I am, the pastor's son. I ought to be saved already and claim to have been saved, and I wasn't. I remember I remember the day that it didn't matter anymore. I just said, Lord, I've got to get saved. I can't do this. And I said, the next opportunity, the next opportunity that you provide for me to respond, I'm going to. I went to class the next morning. We had a Christian school, and they had chapel that day. A man by the name of Stuart Durstock was preaching that day at chapel. Every service that year, he'd given an invitation except that one. He had us raise our hands. He said, if, you, if God spoke in your heart today, he said, would you raise your hand? And I raised my hand. And then he didn't give an invitation. And I thought, oh my, this isn't good. I went back to class, and I was concerned even as I was in class. And I thought, oh, Lord, I've got to get this matter settled. And a knock came on the door. Mr. Durstock was our school principal. And when he came to your class and knocked on the door and asked your name to come to his office, that was not ever a good thing. And he came up there and he knocked on our door and he asked for me to come to his office. I'm thinking, what did I do now? My dad's the pastor, and I mean word spreads fast. Before I could get to his office, most of the time my dad already knew. And my dad and mom were like the old-timey parents, you know. When you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home, too. And we, our school paddled back then. We, we, we got paddled for things, and then we'd go home and get paddled again. And I thought, this is not good. And I get down there to his office, and he said, Greg, he said, I, I hardly ever don't give an invitation. He said, when I ask for hands to go up. He said, yours was the first one up. He said, I went back to my office after chapel, and he said, I couldn't get away from that. 
He says, is there something I can help you with? I'm thankful for people that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. I said, Brother Durstuck, I'm not saved. And I'm cringing. I'm thinking, oh boy, here it comes. He's going to lay into me. Here I'm the pastor's son. That man smiled real broadly. He said, Greg, we'd love to get that matter settled today. He said, would you like me to get your dad and have him here too? And I said, oh, that'd be great. He called my dad in. I remember kneeling down at that chair. I can still picture it. And for the first time, I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd never done that before. And I'm going to tell you something. I'd listened to my dad preach for 13 years, and he was a horrible preacher. Horrible. But boy, the, the minute I got saved, God did something to him. He transformed him into one of the greatest preachers I think I'd ever heard. I sat there in the services, and man, all of a sudden, his messages, they, they were doing something to me. I don't know what he did to my dad, but I'm grateful he did. We laugh and we joke about that, and we understand that the work was not in my dad. The work was right here. I'm actually glad you're saved today. I'm so thankful that God reached down and saved me. I used to, as a, as a preacher's kid, you know, mom and dad didn't let us do much. We, we couldn't get in trouble. And uh, I used to think, boy, God didn't have to do a whole lot to save me. I was thinking about that one day after I'd been saved for a while, and I, I, uh, I thought, you know, if the, if the truth was told... If I had been the only one that needed to be saved, I think the Lord Jesus would have still come and done what He did. And boy, when I realized that it still cost the death of my Savior, whether it was me or the most hardened criminal and sinner that's in this world, it took the same price to buy both of us. And I'll tell you what, I've never been so excited about my salvation as I have been since that day. I, I remember... You used to cringe to have to read my Bible. Now it's now it's done something where I enjoy that time. Pray. I, I would pray when I was supposed to, when I had to. Now I love it. I mean, I actually find time during my day to get alone with the Lord because it's so enjoyable. Something I love to do. Can I tell you that wasn't there before I got saved. There was something that God did inside this heart. The moment I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people it happens faster than others. For me, it happened very quickly. There was a drastic difference, something that changed amazingly in my heart. I'll tell you this, I've had a lot of sorrow in my life since then. There's been a lot of pain. There's been a lot of circumstances that I would not want folks to go through. A lot of tears that have been shed. And yet I would say this without any, without even blinking, blinking an eye. Trusting Christ as my Savior was the single greatest decision I've ever made. He doesn't promise it to be an easy life, but He promises to go through the life with us, to guide our steps, to give us strength, to give us comfort. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that have happened since I've trusted Christ as my Savior that had... Had I not had that wonderful peace that comes from the Holy Spirit of God, I wouldn't have made it through. 
I'll tell you this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, God loves you. He does not want you to die and go to hell. He does not take joy in judging men for their sins and making them serve the penalty of the death in hell. In fact, He loved us so much that He was willing to let His Son die in our place. And then He gives it to us freely. We don't have to work for it. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He doesn't make you work. He doesn't make you join a church. Aren't you glad of that? <laughs> he doesn't make you get baptized to get saved. He just asks you to put your faith and trust in Him and what He did on Calvary. That's all He asks. I've heard people say, well, I don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell, and I agree with that statement. I believe a loving God would do everything He could to keep people out of hell, even if He had to send His own Son to pay the price for them. And that's exactly what He's done. If a man chooses to go to hell now, he does it trampling through the price that Christ paid for us on Calvary. He does it with absolute rejection to that. And I hope this morning that everybody here is saved. I hope everybody's trusted Christ as their Savior. But if you haven't, you ought to take Him up on it today. It will be the greatest decision you've ever made. From sinking sand He lifted me. With tender hand He lifted me. From shades of night plains of light. Oh, praise His name, He lifted me. What a joy to this morning. That's not even the message, but I uh, wanted to share that with you. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, if you will. Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> we'll read one verse of Scripture just to put a thought in our hearts. It's a standalone Scripture, even though it applies to the context of the passage. It is something that will give indication even as its own, on its own. And then that is verse number 37, Matthew chapter 24, verse number 37. The Bible says, But as the days of Noah were, so also, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this morning and speak to our hearts. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit do His work to encourage us, perhaps to reprove even, maybe to bring conviction to our hearts. Whatever the case is, I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately. Lord, may the commitment of our heart be at the onset of this message that if you will show us your truth, our answer will already be yes. Lord, I want to follow your truth. I want to walk in it. And so, Lord, may we have such a spirit this morning as we enter into your word that if you'll show us your truth, we will walk in it. May we make that commitment here at the onset, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to speak on the end times, although I certainly believe we're living in the last of the last days. I believe that the coming of the Lord could be at any moment. And uh, even so much more as I see things going on in the world, 
I'm ready for that. I'm excited about that. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, that we're to comfort one another with these words, that we're not to be anxious about them or scared about them. But I also have a great conviction in them, in that there are many, many people who need to hear the gospel yet, and I wonder how diligent we are to doing this work that God has given to us. He's entrusted this wonderful, wonderful gospel message. He's put it in our hands. He's entrusted it to us. What are we doing with it? Are we being like the man who was given the one talent and we went and digged a hole and buried it? Or are we taking it and are we using it to bear more fruit? I hope that we're the one that takes it and bears more fruit with it. I want us to focus in more on the idea of the days of Noah. The days of Noah were characterized by some things. The Bible says here that in verse number 38, that in those days, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, and so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be describes the character of the society of the day. When Noah, for over a hundred years, works and labors and builds an ark, and all of that time is preaching people to repent, that the judgment of the Lord is coming, that they needed to get right with God, and they needed to get their hearts right with God. And the Bible says this, that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And the Bible says, until that, that day came. And then it says this in verse 39, and I think it's a very sad statement. It says, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. I cannot stand here today and say that this was the fault of Noah because Noah, the Bible teaches us, was preaching this message. This was the, 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 the fault of those who, the, to whom he was preaching to who were not listening to the message. They were so encumbered by the affairs of this world, they were so entangled by the affairs of this world, that they did not give a thought to the things of God. And we look at the lost world around us today, and we live in a day very similar, don't we? We live in a day where those who do not know Christ as their Savior are eating and drinking, they're marrying and giving in marriage, and they know not, and they will not until that day comes, unless we tell them. But I don't want to focus on those that are lost that are characterized by this. I want to focus on the danger there is of even God's people losing their sight of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, losing their sight of the diligence of the Christian life to stay, keep our eyes and our gaze upon Him. Because the truth is, we get encumbered by the things of this world, don't we? Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. One of the great dangers of this world is that we become encumbered, we become entangled with what the Bible refers to as the affairs of this life. So much so that Paul said he had to buffet his body daily. He had to bring his thoughts into captivity and he had to do so on a regular basis, lest he himself would be a castaway, lest he himself would, would follow after this thing. Paul's the one that said, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And Paul's diligence in the Christian life is something that we look to and we, we're impressed by and we look to as an example of something we ought to be. But it did not come without there being a realization of the temptation of this world to draw us away. James spoke of that. 
The Bible says that when a man sins, he sins when he's drawn away and tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life come and tempt us. He says when we sin, it's because we're drawn away and enticed by our own lusts. Why? Because we get our eyes off of the things that we ought to have them on. Take your play, take your Bibles, if you will. Turn to me, Luke chapter number nine. Luke chapter number nine. A story is given here. It's, a, it's not a, a parable, but it's a true story of something that took place during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had just uh, come through Samaria and had suffered rejection there, as so often was the case in Christ's ministry. And let's look in verse number 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. By the way, I think that's a verse you ought to show every lost person. Because for some reason, somehow along the way, we have become so... Uh, vocal of the judge, the coming judgment of God, that we almost make it sound like this is something God's heart desires. Is the is the he, he takes pleasure or glee in judging men? No, God's brokenhearted when He has to judge men. Does He judge them? Yes, because He's just God. But does He take pleasure in it? Oh no, He didn't come to condemn these men. He did not come to destroy their lives. He came to save them. And I love this, and they went to another village. I love that statement. You ever been frustrated? What does it take to stop you from serving the Lord? Well, Pastor, you just don't know what that person said about me. I, I you know what? I, if this is the Christian life, I don't, I'm just, I'm not even going to go to church anymore. I, you know what? That person hurt my feelings. Can I help you with something? People are human, and somewhere along the line, somebody is going to hurt your feelings. Jesus was rejected. His disciples responded the way most of us want to respond. Can we call down fire from heaven? Destroy them? Jesus said, no. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to save them. And they went to another village. They didn't stop. They didn't go back home with their tails tucked between their legs and say, well, we tried. We tried. Nobody wants to hear the gospel, so I might as well just save my breath. No. They went to the next city, didn't they? And look what takes place here. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. That's interesting. They're going in the way, and a man volunteers. He comes up and he says, I'm going to follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Maybe a little encouragement along the way, you think? And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and turning back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We have three different men here. Two of them voluntarily said, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. One of them, Jesus even called. And he said, I'll do it, but 
I need to do something else first. And you never hear of any of these three men again. After they reply to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the last we hear of them. There's a problem that these folks had, and this is the problem. They were not unwilling to follow Christ. If I were to go around the room and say, how many of you are willing to follow Christ? I would, I would imagine, if you're saved today and love the Lord, every hand would go up. Their problem was not their unwillingness to follow Christ. Their problem was their unwillingness to follow Christ first. They had another issue in, in place that, that consumed their thoughts and consumed their life. And I'll tell you, one of the great battles that I face, and I'm just going to be very transparent with you, one of the battles I face in my life is the amount of, of, of enticement of the world that seems to grab a hold of our hearts and our minds and so quickly consumes it. I'm not talking about things that are necessarily wrong. But just the fact that it consumes our time, it consumes our life, and the things of the Lord are put on a shelf and they are given second priority to the things of life. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in the same position these three men found themselves, with a willingness to follow Christ, but not a willingness to follow Him first. Romans Chapter number 12, Paul writes, writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And by the way, that ought to be the only reason we need. He says, I'm beseeching you and I'm doing it for this reason, because God has shown you mercy. That is the authority, that is the foundation that I am making my request of you on. Is because God has shown you mercy. That ought to be the only reason we need. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. You ever thought about that? God does not demand, God does not forcefully take our life as a sacrifice to Him. He wants us to present it willingly from our heart to His. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? Living Sacrifice. I was talking to a very good friend of mine, Brother Dick Snook. A number of years ago, we were flying across the state in a little Cessna airplane, and we were talking back and forth. And he said, you know, Pastor, he said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps climbing down off the altar. I'd never heard it quite put that way, but the truth of the matter is when we're a living sacrifice, there are moments and there are times in our life that we are not as sacrificial as we ought to be. There are times that we are selfish with our lives and we say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you, but I, can you give me just a minute? I've got something else I need to do. I've got something right now. I have a son. He's 14 years old. And uh, he's going through that stage where Dad will ask him to do something or sometimes even tell him to do something. And he'll say, you know what it is? Just a minute. Just a minute. I think we all go through that stage at some point in life, don't we? Until Mom and Dad beat it out of us. Just a minute. And what he's saying by that is, Dad, I'm willing to do it. I will do it. But I've got something first that I need to do. And it concerns me. And my will is more important right now than what you need or what you want. The psalmist put it this way, I think best. He said, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. 
The psalmist said, oh, if I could only take the will of my heart and bring it into subjection with your will so that my will is to do your will. Isn't it interesting that the wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ was that He did the will of Him that sent Him. He didn't do His own will. He did the will of the Father. The problem with these men was not their unwillingness to follow Christ, but their unwillingness to follow Him first. And I wonder this morning how often that becomes the case in our lives and we don't even realize it. You say, Pastor, I read my Bible every day. I, I, I don't doubt that, and I, don't think, I think that's a good thing. We ought to do it. Well, I spend time praying. I'm in church every time the doors are open. I, go to, I, I mean, I'm involved. If there's a church fellowship, I'm there. I'm with them. I do all of this. But are we willing to follow Him first? There's some things given in Scripture, I think, that are areas that Christ teaches that we must make sure that we are giving Him first place in. And I'll be real frank with you. Somewhere along the line in these five, as I go through them, my heart gets convicted. If I go through these every day, every morning, and I think, Lord, am I giving you first place in each of these areas? I will always seem to find one or more. Oh, boy, I need to work on that one. I'm entangled with the affairs of this life. I'm busy eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and and I'm not considering the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ or the things of God. You say, well, Pastor, are you expecting me to think about God all the time? I mean, isn't that a little fanatical? Yes and yes. After all that He's done for me, I I think when Paul woke, woke up in the morning... I really believe this. I think when the Apostle Paul woke up in the morning, the first thought on his mind is, I wonder what God's got for me today. He went to bed thinking, I wonder what God's going to have for me tomorrow. John spoke and wrote very clearly of Christ's teaching, of the branch not able to survive and even bear fruit lest it abides in the vine. The idea of abiding in the vine, that our entire dependence upon our spiritual life is dependent upon you and I residing in the presence of God. I'm not talking about just having a time in your prayer closet every day. I'm not talking about having a devotional time. I love what was said years ago of Charles Spurgeon when he was out on a very rare day that he took off to spend with his friends at a park and a picnic. And in their response to that day, they said we could never tell when he was speaking to us and when he was speaking to God. He lived in the presence of God. Oh, that we could do such a thing. That we would not just be willing to follow Him, but that we would be willing to follow Him first. If you have your Bibles handy, I want you to keep them handy. We're going to turn to several passages. Look with me, first of all, to James chapter number 4. The book of James chapter number 4. James chapter number 4. And let's look in uh, verse number 14. James chapter 4, verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a what? A vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then what happens to it? And then vanisheth away. Uh, Somebody asks you, how much time do we have left? 
before the Lord Jesus Christ? And the only answer I can give is not much. Because whether by the rapture or by death, our life is short. The time that we have is precious. Look with me to Colossians chapter number 4. Paul speaks on this. The idea of the time that we have. And in Colossians chapter number uh, 4, if you will, and verse number 5, Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 5, he makes this statement to the church at Colossae. He says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the what? Redeeming the time. You know what the word redeem means? It means to buy back. It, it, it kind of has the idea that you, you sold something or you lost something and it came up and you had the ability to buy it back again. To make sure that we don't let loose of it. That we don't lose any moment. You know, the Bible says that we'll give an account one day for every idle word that we speak. That's something to consider and to ponder. Look with me in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, just a few pages back in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 16. Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 16. Let's look at verse 15 because I believe it goes with verse 16. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil, wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Again, we have the idea of being wise with our time. Could I put it this way? When it comes to our willingness to follow Christ, I believe that our time has first dibs, that God has first dibs on our time. It's amazing to me how many times in my lifetime over the years that there has been a, a revival or some special meeting of the church or perhaps some opportunity that we've had to serve the Lord or to share the gospel with someone and we were too busy. I was a youth pastor for a number of years under my dad's ministry and it was amazing how many times I would ask young people, are you coming to the youth activity? Well, if I don't have something else going on. And I think, boy, how frustrating that is. I'm going to go ask the parents. I'll get some support from the parents. And I would ask the parents, are, you, are your kids coming to the youth activity? And I would get the response, if we don't have something else going on. There's a willingness to follow Christ, but maybe not a willingness to follow Him first in the area of our time. I'm not just talking about church services. What about our time that we spend walking with God each day? What priority does it have? Our time in devotions, our time in prayer, our time walking with God, what priority does it have in our day's time? Well, Pastor, I'm, I'm willing to follow God and have a devotion time. I'm willing to follow time, God and spend time in His Word and in prayer and meditation. I'm willing to do that. And when I get time, I'll make sure I do it. I think pastors have done such a disservice over the years and preachers have done such a disservice over the years in teaching their people, you need to be willing to follow God. Because I don't think we've gone far enough. What we ought to be teaching is we need to be willing to follow God first. 
What about our time? Are we redeeming it? Are we buying it back? Are we being careful with it? What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. Somebody wrote this little poem last uh, years ago. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Some of the things that we do with our life are going to burn as wood and hay and stubble. There's going to be some of us that will stand before God one day with very little in our hands. No reward. Because we've spent our lives so consumed by the affairs of this world. Look with me, if you will, in Ecclesiastes, back just past the Psalms towards the middle of your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter number 9. One of the great, great wise men wrote the Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And that was the uh, man Solomon, the King Solomon, wrote Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, in verse number 10, he writes this, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. He deals here with the subject of work. Can I say this? God designed us to work. A lot of people say, Boy, I wish Adam and Eve hadn't sinned in the garden. I wouldn't have to work. That's not the case. God created man and put him in the garden to do what? To dress it and to keep it. He created work before the fall of man. He designed us, and only as a man works is he satisfied with life. You want to find a man who's depressed, it's a man who's not able to work or a man who just won't work. They, they, they struggle with depression. They struggle with anxiety. They have no purpose in life. They have no fulfillment. They have no satisfaction because God designed us to work. We have the most fulfillment. We have the greatest uh, 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 satisfaction in our life when we give a hard day's work. My son, he's getting to the years where he's getting some muscles on him finally, and he's able to do a little bit more. And we were out uh, doing some yard work a couple of weeks ago over at Miss Joanne's house. And uh, I thought, boy, I might get an hour out of him. He's a typical teenager, maybe two hours of work in the middle of the day. And he ended up saying, Dad, I love this. This is, man, this is great. And he said, I, and we got ready to come home that night. He said, I like being able to step back and see that something got done with the effort that we put in today. And I said, he's finally starting to learn. He's finally starting to get it. That there is an enjoyment to work. Now, now, the working by the sweat of our brow part is the part that came with the fall. And we don't like that much as much. We were out here working on the, some stuff on the side of the church yesterday and carrying some heavy things and lifting some things and doing the yard work around the church. And it was a warm day yesterday. And he's like, Dad, it's hot out here, you know. So we don't like the work by the sweat of our brow, but the work is certainly satisfactory. And, you know, even when it comes to our work, God needs to have first choice in it. If you will, look with me in John chapter number 9. John chapter number 9. And look in verse number 4. John chapter 9 and verse number 4. Jesus, again, one of our great, great examples. He said, uh, he said I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh 
when no man can work? Does he have first claim on our work? I must work what? What I want to do? Notice what he says here. I must work the works of who? Him that sent me. You know the first consideration in our life when it comes to the work that we do is, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Everything else becomes secondary to it. For years, for years, I used to teach young people uh, as a youth pastor, you need to, when you, when you get ready to, to, to figure out what it is you're going to do with your life, you need to pray about it and seek God's will about it and, uh, and, and uh, you know, ask Him to show you uh, what He wants you to do with your life. And um, then when He shows you, then let's do that. And, and the idea was, uh, oftentimes with the young people, well, I've got this desire to do this kind of work in my life. And so when I pray, I want to ask God if He'll give me permission to do it. You ever been there? Uh, it's more like, Lord, I, I really I want to go into this field, but I want Your will. Is this Your will? I really hope it is. And we teach them perhaps the wrong thing. We teach them to get permission from God to do something, which, by the way, because of the free will of man, God often will allow us to do things that may not be His will. And the sad thing is, oftentimes, because the door is open and we feel like we're allowed to do it, that that is God's will, and it oftentimes is not. I said, why not rather, instead of saying, Lord, until you show me what you want, and this is what typically happens, Lord, they, they said, Pastor, I prayed about it, I've asked the Lord to show me, and until then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do this, this work over here, and, and God will show me at some point, and then when He shows me, I'll go do that. That's backwards. Because what we're saying is, I want my will to be done first, and then if God shows me something, after I've done my will, I will do God's will. There was a fellow years ago by the name of George Gibson. He sat right down here about the second row uh, in the church that my dad pastored down in Florida on this side of the pulpit about the second row back. By the time I knew him, he was up in years, had retired from the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. And uh, oftentimes he would watch my sister and I when we were little and when my mom and dad were busy and he would kind of babysit us and watch us. I I hate to call it babysitting because we were, you know, elementary age uh, at the time. But we used to love to go over to his house. He was an interesting fellow, always had great stories, and, and we would play games and things together. But he was up in years. His wife had passed away a number of years before. And I remember my dad preaching one day, and Brother George Gibson came to the altar on this side of the pulpit. I can still remember seeing him come, and tears just streaming down his face. At that point, I would suspect he was probably in his late 70s, maybe early 80s. And he came and he surrendered to preach the gospel. My dad told the story later on, and he talked with Brother George about this. As a young man, God had called Brother George to preach, and he was just about to enter into the ministry when Goodyear Tire and Rubber that he had been working for offered him an an advance, a, a rather large and sizable advance in the company. And after praying about it, and he said, boy, this is a great opportunity. Uh, I think I'm going to take it. The door is open. It must be what God wants. He did that. And he did it for a lifetime. And he sat there at the altar that night, weeping, saying, I have missed what God had for me. He said, for the rest of my life, I want to give it to preach the gospel. And for the next five or seven years, however long he had before he passed away, every week he was in some nursing home somewhere preaching the gospel every week. He said, boy, that's a sad story. Here's a young man who 
had an open door of opportunity. It looked like God's hand of blessing on his life. And he took that as God's will. Why would we not rather teach foes to say, Lord, and why not teach our young people this? Why don't we teach them to say, Lord, I'm going to serve you first. In fact, I'm going to pursue after ministry. I'm going to pursue after serving you. But Lord, if you want me to do something else, I'll be more than happy to do it. Because here's what happens. If we teach a young person to say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, and until then I'm going to do this. If they never understand what God has for them, they always in the back of their mind think, God didn't want me. In the back of their mind, they think, I must be second rate because I offered my life to God and He didn't take it. But if we teach them the other direction, I'm going to, I'm going to serve you first, Lord. I'm going, to, I'm going to train for ministry. I'm going to serve in ministry. And if you want me to be a Christian businessman, if you want me to be a Christian teacher, if you want me to be a Christian garbage man, then I'll do it knowing full well that I am in the very center of your will for my life. We do it backwards often, don't we? Because in the area of our work, oftentimes we're willing to follow Him. But we're not willing to follow Him first. Colossians chapter 3, we have to move quickly. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter number 3 and verse number 1. <coughs> Excuse me. If ye then be risen with Christ. So who is he speaking to here? If ye then be risen with Christ. He's speaking to the Christians. Those that are in the church. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which what? <coughs> which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Notice verse number 2. Set your what? What's the next word here? Set your what? Your affection on the things above, not on things on the earth. <clears throat> God has to have first place in our time. God has to have first place in our work. And God has to have first place in our affection. What is it that we love? What is it that we long for? Do I give God <coughs> control of my affection? Are there things that this world entices us with that we know to be out of the character of God that we're willing to say, Lord, my affection's not going there. I'm going to stay away from that. This is what we call standards. These are things that we say, I'm going to take a stand against those things because I know they're outside of the character of God. But, but Pastor, they're enjoyable things. I understand that. But are we going to give Him first place in the area of my affection? What am I going to set my affection on? Not on things on this earth, but what does He say here? Verse number 2, set your affection on what? You know, the things that I love most in this life ought to be the things of God. I'm a pilot. I love, I love flying airplanes. 
I've loved it since I was eight years old. It would have been very easy in my life to go off into a career of being a pilot. But my affection first needs to be, Lord, I love the things of You. I love Your Word. I love Your ministry. Now, I'm not saying that it's God's will for every person to go into ministry. What I'm saying is it ought to be our first choice and then see what God has us to do from there. It ought to be the surrender of our heart to say, Lord, I'll do it, and I'll do it first unless you show me otherwise. I think we'd have far more missionaries on the field today if that were the case. I think we'd have far more preachers in the pulpits if that were the case. I think we'd have far more people that would be faithful and attend a church that God leads them in, and they would serve in that church and reach people with the gospel if we would come to this mindset of giving God first place. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and bear with me. We're going to be a few moments late, but we'll get through it quickly here. Matthew chapter 22, verse number 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? All thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang what? All the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment is that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. There ought not be anything in this world that we love any more so than, than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it, the Bible teaches us that if a man... Uh, that, that if a man... A man um, does not hate his father and his mother and his brother and sister. The reference to that is not that he shows hatred to them, but that the love for the Lord Jesus Christ is so great in his life that it makes the love that he has for his mom, his dad, his brother and sister to look like hate. How many of you love your wife or your husband? How many of you love your children? Could you imagine anything in this world loving them even more than that? I'll tell you something. There are some children of mine that I would not do anything to sacrifice them for. I love them so much. I get criticized sometimes. I, I do so much for them oftentimes because I love them so much. Can I tell you, the love for our Lord, our affection for the things of God, ought to be far greater, far greater than even the love for our own families. I'm not saying for you to neglect your family. I'm saying the love for, us, for Him. Our heart for Him ought to be more than even our own families. You say, was that principle ever shown in Scripture? Well, sure it is. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, and sacrifice him, didn't he? God, you understand this. God never wanted Isaac. That wasn't the point of that. God wanted Abraham. When Abraham raised the knife and began to plunge it downward and the angel stopped him, it was proof to God. It was showing God. And it was showing Abraham more so than God because God already knew Abraham's heart. That my heart for God is greater than anything. I mean, this is the son, his only son, the one that he loved, the one that he cherished, the one that he spoiled. 
And yet, for God's sake, he was willing to do what God asked him to do. I'm not saying you go out here and you kill a family member, and anybody that goes out and says that's God's will is lying to you, because even God did not let Abraham go through with it. But what I'm trying to display here is the heart. The love that Abraham had for God. Set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Number four, Philippians chapter number three. Philippians chapter three. I am conscious of the time. We'll try to get you out here in a timely manner here. Philippians chapter number three. Let's look in verse number eight. Let's go to verse number seven just so we can get a running start into it. Paul's writing here and he says, But what things were gained to me meaning in his flesh, in his life. He says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of what? Many things? All, all things. Suffered the loss of all things. And notice what he said about those things that he lost. Do count them, the things that he lost, but what? Done, that I may win Christ. Can I tell you this? When it comes to our material possessions, they belong to him. They belong to him. I often, I often have asked folks, how much of our, our income belongs to God? How much of it? All of it. It all does. How much of the material things that He blesses our life with belong to Him? All of it. It all belongs to Him. Doesn't that cause us to say, then I better be a very good steward of what God has entrusted me with in this life? You know, we, we gripe about it often to God, don't we? God, I just don't have enough. I need a little, little more money. I want a longer boat. I want a, a nicer uh, uh, bow and arrow to go hunting with. All right? I want a nice dress. Some of you ladies, I don't know what you ladies buy, perfume or, you know, girly things, whatever that is. I want, Lord, please, I need, I need, I need. You know what's amazing to me is Paul made this statement. He said, I have been abased. He said, I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound. He talked about times where he was shipwrecked, beaten, in prison, didn't have anything, was in hunger. And other times where he abounded. God put blessings upon him and people gave out of their need and their necessity for his ministry. He said, I know how to be both abased and abound. I've been both. Paul learned that the secret was to be satisfied in whatsoever state I am, he said, therewith. To be what? Whether it's abased or whether it's abounding, I'm content. Whether I'm in need or whether I have abundance, I am content. Why? Because He has given me all of this and it belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. Our problem in the Christian life with dissatisfaction, our problem in the Christian life was saying, boy, I just... I just am struggling right now. I don't have enough to pay my bills. I don't have enough for this. I don't have enough for that. Is that we fail to be content with what we do have. 
You say, well, can I be content when things aren't going well? Well, let's think about that for a minute. The Apostle Paul was on a missionary journey with a man by the name of Silas. The people in the town didn't like what they were doing. See what they did? They beat them, and then they threw them into the prison. And, and you know what Paul and Silas did that night? They sent emails to all their Christian friends complaining about what the, these people had done to them. They posted it all over the Facebook of the day and said, You just won't believe how this city has treated me. This is terrible. I can't believe that God is allowing this to happen in my life. Is that what they did? <laughs> what did they do? They sang what? Praises to God. When Paul prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be taken from him three different times, God said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, I will therefore glorify in my glory in my infirmities, that the power of God may rest upon me. What about the things that we have in our life, the material possessions? Well, Pastor, I just don't have enough stuff. You have what God's given you. Pastor, I've got abundance. You've got what God's given you. We're to be stewards of what He's given to us. And lastly, Philippians chapter 2, just a couple pages over. Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 5, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Speaking here primarily of humility, but of having the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter number 4 and verse number 8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, the greatest sins in the Christian life are sins of the mind. Because we don't think anybody sees them. Does God have first claim, first place in our thoughts? You say, Pastor, I, I've had a, a bad life. I've seen things. I've heard things. I've been bombarded in the things I've seen and I've heard. Which, by the way, the Bible says, Just Lot vexed his righteous soul by seeing and hearing the wickedness of Sodom from day to day. You're not, a, you're not any different than anyone else. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? <laughs> By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my mouth, my heart, that I might not, what? Sin against God. Well, Pastor, how do I get this, this mind to be in, 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 in tune with what God has? Paul said it best. He said, I bring my thoughts into captivity. I, I, I go out there and they're, they're wandering towards the things of the world. I grab them and I wrestle them down. And I do that by feasting on God's Word. Does He have first place in our lives? Or does He just have a place? The problems we face often in the Christian life when we have problems... It's not a failure to be willing to follow Him. That's usually not the issue. Usually the issue comes down to, I'm not willing to follow Him first. 
how are we doing today? In this area, how are we doing? I'll be honest, it's a battle in my life. It's something I wrestle with. And I'll be frank with you, more days than not, it's an issue. More days than not, it's something that has to be dealt with. Oh, that we would learn this truth and guard against it. That we would not be a living sacrifice that climbs down off the altar. One that says, I want to be sure that I'm following Him first in these areas. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We've gone a little bit long today, but Lord, a very necessary message. I pray that You would use it. And Father, speak to hearts. I pray that You would help there be some commitments today that are made that will draw us closer to You, that will help us to be more of a testimony for You and more of a witness to those that are lost as a result of us saying, Lord, I don't want to just be willing to follow You. I want to be willing to follow You first.